0: customarily what i do wayne is yeah. i invite a guest on they assign me a subject a oh. history subject they find so interesting oh, they see. want me to fuck it for them right and i fuck the history and then i we right. kind of fuck it together for the listeners is got the it, idea Got it, got it, it. but this you're the ex you have already fucked it and had uh babies and a very legitimate family i'm kind of your side piece i don't know there's right. an analogy in there somewhere history i'd like to follow me history of stand-up. Oh, this is such a great episode and I'm so glad you're here. Now, the world has had comedy, of course, forever. (laughs) I have no doubt a caveman did a silly impression of a woolly mammoth, (laughs) but the term stand-up and stand-up comedy as we know it today is less than 100 years old. And the journey it took from minstrel shows to vaudeville, to the radio, through the television, and on to Netflix is a fascinating story, and I probably have the best possible person with me to tell it. Wayne Fetterman has been working in stand-up for over 40 years. His acting credits include Curb Your Enthusiasm, Step Brothers, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and many more. And he has even more writing credits, including several episodes of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. He is also a professor of stand-up and performance at the University of Southern California, USC, and our conversation is a blast. So, pull up a seat. (laughs) Don't forget our two-drink minimum, (laughs) as Hilf presents the history of stand-up. Let's get started. (laughs) Wayne Fetterman, I am delighted that you are here on Hilf. Tell me, have you, and you can be 100%
1: honest, have you heard any of the episodes of Hilf before? I have not. Mm-hmm. I have not. I don't, this is the thing about, I don't usually swear in my acts. So this is going to be really fun for me. Oh, you're a clean. Are not you're, always, not always, but yeah.
0: I mean, it's. Do yeah. you find that you yourself are generally just, you don't have I, a right. foul mouth and therefore your comedy isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But not that uh, in any way, like I was just watching. Comedian named Sam Kennison, mm-hmm. who I adore, mm-hmm. and he would swear quite a bit. So it has nothing to do with, like, oh, these words, I can't handle it. Yeah. There's no judgment. I'm just <laughs> like, all right, let's do it. I'm also looking
0: at him. He's wearing the shirt. It says USC School mm-hmm. of Dramatics, and I have your credits right here. So you uh, teach at USC.
1: Yes, and two. And
0: you're, yeah, tell me, stand-up and performance. What is that?
1: Well, now I teach two specific classes. This is all new. I used to just teach one. And believe it or not, there's a stand-up program at USC. And so there's a stand-up one, like an introductions to stand-up. And then if you take that class and successfully pass it, Mm -hmm. you get a chance to study with Wayne Fetterman in stand-up too.
0: Wow. And do you find that most of your students, their aspiration is to themselves become a stand-up comedian? Well, I
1: specifically named the course. I had them rename the course Stand up to becoming a pro. Uh-huh. So, my whole focus is on that. Uh-huh. So, there's a few, there's always a few that want to do it. And a lot of people were just like, Oh, I had a good time in stand up one. I'm an engineering per- person. Yeah. This might be fun to do. So, not all of them want to become a pro, mm-hmm. but that's how I I focus the course.
0: I, I feel like if I was a parent of a student going to USC mm-hmm. in
1: 2022. Yep. You, that's how you say it 2022.
0: Is that how I say it? Yeah. What do yeah. you say?
1: Well, so some people call it 2022. 2022.
0: 2022. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess I'm a 2022 gal. Right.
1: I say 2022. So let's, everyone with, has their own with system. With a question mark, I like yeah, that. two oh
0: two 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 um In the year of the two-twos, um, I would be simultaneously delighted that my child was interested in stand-up. And also like, why am I paying all this money no, for you to go way to USC too much. Way too much. to take a stand-up comedy class? Well, I think it's not – it's not –
1: Yes, it's ridiculous. Obviously, <laughs> it's rid- the amount of money they pay is ridiculous.
0: But at least they know they're gonna get that back when they become a professional they, comedian. You know, I
1: I think it. I don't think they pay by unit. I think they just pay for the quarter and then like take as much as little as they want.
0: That'd be great. We semester. had to pay by credits.
1: You did? Yeah. Oh, that's Minnesota style. <laughs>
0: that is Minnesota style, those Midwest <laughs> hacks. Um, and you also do a podcast called The History of Stand Up with Andrew yes. Steven.
1: Yes, yes.
0: That's, I listened to a couple episodes of it. It was great. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. thank
1: you. Yeah, it's very produced show. It's not like this. No. Like it takes us a long time. It takes us about 50 hours to get a 45 minute episode. Holy shit. Crew. Music and things. Yeah. yeah. It's edited and things and funny clips. It's yeah. like. And it's great. Oh, and what I,
0: one of the things I love about it is what uh, my listeners will not be having, which right. is all the clip. Like, you obviously do the curating of finding the audio clips mm-hmm. and the segments of all of these people. So my listeners should go immediately over to History of Stand-Up Podcasts oh, okay. with Wayne Fetterman and Andrew Steven and Yeah. Get all that stuff. And you yourself have been a comic performing in the clubs for almost 40 years.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. It seems, yeah. Still still plugging away still plugging away like an idiot just like (laughs) I i can't like how many times can the industry say no
0: I don't know. I don't know a lot. lot. I Listen, I the other night I was. Do you know Marty Ross? Yeah, Marty Ross, very very funny comedian. He's 82 years old. He was on America's Got Talent. He's very mm-hmm. funny. He and I were performing last week at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank, mm-hmm. and we held hands like little kids in a sandbox, and we're talking about why we do this stupid thing and why <laughs> we keep coming out at ten. He was like, he, he's walking with a cane. His back hurts. He That's just found out he had cancer. I had cancer at the beginning of the pandemic. I got a three and a half year old at home. I'm sitting here at Flappers trying to huff down a spicy pizza before i you know <laughs> get on stage and we looked at each other we were like why are we doing and we laughed and we just held hands and we we're like i love it i'd like don't tell anybody but i love it i'll do it yes, till they it's, it's tell me incredible. i can't it's do one it of anymore. The
1: great, that's what i tell the kids i tell them it's, it's one of the greatest jobs on the planet earth
0: yeah my history with you wayne fetterman is we were on the same show, uh, it is called Storyworthy. Christine yep. Blackburn produces it. She does a live version at the Hollywood Improv, uh, the Lab, and then she also has a podcast where she interviews people about their yep. stories and their interesting stuff. And you were a panelist, and we had done some live ones. I'm not gonna break it. I, I won four times.
1: Yeah, but you're good.
0: you you're you're good you you were the live judge in the theater, and then we did a Zoom.
1: Mm-hmm. During In, right, the, in right, the height right, of COVID, yes. we
0: did a Zoom one, which I, t- I bombed. I just kind of stared at my hands and told some story, and that's that's okay. But during that Zoom show, Christine introduced you as the author of the book, The History of Stand-Up, and I, my eyes lit up, and I, I put my head down, and I'm looking around because I'm on my phone ordering your book. History of Stand-Up. I mean, it's...
1: It's, it's, it's almost made, written for you. It
0: was written for me. And I, then
1: you posted a very evocative picture that i saw and loved so thank that's you. true
0: i was that's right i was licking it yeah i was and i did and i will again <laughs> and i sent and i sent copies to people and
1: uh i i do teach it's myself a fast, it's a fast it's, read it's only 150 pages
0: it's great so in this podcast listeners it's going to be slightly different because i am not probably almost assuredly going to be telling my guest Anything he does not know about the subject at hand.
1: Maybe you found
0: out some... There's, Maybe, know. probably not. Customarily, what I do, Wayne, is yeah. I invite a guest on. They assign me a subject... A history oh. subject they find so interesting, oh, I they see. want me to fuck it for them, right? And I fuck the history, and then I we right. kind of fuck it together for the listeners is got the it, idea. Got it, got it, But this, you're the ex, you have already fucked it and had uh, babies and a very legitimate family. I'm kind of your side piece. I don't know. There's an right. analogy in there somewhere. Um, but what I'm going to do is kind of talk about some of the coolest things that I learned from your book, and I have a lot of questions. Let's do it. Why and where we got the term stand-up? Because this book is not the history of comedy. No, We're,
1: very specifically Very not. specifically not the history of comedy. Right. Because So yes, it's specifically stand-up.
0: Which is why I think the origin of the term... Is well, really important. And, and there's two theories. You yes, At least you have are, in your book. There's there a couple two theories, of theories. Yes. And um, the first theory is that it comes from agents, bookers, that they yes. had to sort of differentiate from a Charlie Chaplin
1: no, or no, no, a no, musical. Was, right. Yeah. There were acts that like did pantomime to records mm-hmm. or something like that. A comedy act with a partner in a boot, you know, like a heckler guy. Mm -hmm. They would call him Stooges. Mm. That's where the three Stooges came from. Oh, right. It would be somebody, a plant in the audience that would heckle the person. But a stand-up was somebody who just worked by himself, didn't have any music, didn't need anything except a microphone. And that was a specific kind of com- comedian,
0: and it would be important for them to have this term because they'd be talking to theaters about like you don't need music cues, you don't need to exactly. the size oh. of your stage so that you it's could a have useful this term. Book. Yes. <laughs> yes, but then, but the, and that's a great and I that's probably the accurate theory. the one I prefer though is the second one you <laughs> talk about, which one. is the mafia. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so tell us about the 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 mob and Vegas and and how the stand-up well, term may have come from there. It's
1: even before Las Vegas, which was built in the '40s started to be built in the forest, still building it, if you ever go out there. right? But there was something called Prohibition, which went from probably the early... like 1918 probably to 1932.
0: 1919 to
1: 1934. So during that time, there was a lot of illegal drinking, especially in the hundreds of these... They were called speakeasies. Mm -hmm. So that's where the mafia got big in Chicago, got big in New York, da-da-da-da. When drinking became legal... A lot of those speakeasies just became nightclubs. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the mob was still running them. So that's how they got their claws into the nightclub world. Because they still had the real estate. They had the real estate, and they knew where the the alcohol came from. Mm -hmm. And they just, yeah.
0: And people knew that was where to go. I mean, the the people were already primed for that location. So it was
1: a perfect thing. So when they started opening more and more nightclubs, it was the mafia basically ran it. And so... If you worked as a comic in any of these nightclubs, you were basically working for the mob. And that continued into Vegas, like into, like... Into the 70s. Like, there was yeah. mob. Jay Leno tells a, a joke about his early
0: days mm-hmm. I- is being in picked Boston? up by the mob and how he had said, eh, I'm already booked somewhere else. And then he gets a call. and They were like, you're you're booked with us now. Yeah, yeah. We, we went ahead and fixed that for you. Well, it,
1: well I, all right. I'm going to do... I know you like stories. There's I do. There's this crazy guy. He's not in my book because he was like a singer who became a comedian. Yeah. But his name is Joe E. Lewis. Not Joey, uh, but Joe E. e. <laughs> Lewis. Okay. And he... Was a singer in Chicago and got booked at some club and then got a better offer for $1,000 a week instead of 600 Like, I'm going to go to that. And the guy was like, no, you're not. And they cut his throat. Like, cut his throat and, like, left him for dead. It's a miracle he lived. <gasps> and then because he couldn't sing anymore, became a stand-up.
0: Oh man!
1: Left that out of the book. Oh. That's how much information is in there. Yeah.
0: See, it's 150 pages. Could have been 157. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. The mob also handled boxers, and they would refer to as a boxer who just not like run, who would just stand in the middle of the ring and punch. He was called a stand-up boxer, and mm-hmm. just that. And they, one comedian from that era, thinks that's how that term came about. It can't hurt. You like that one. I do. Yeah.
0: I mean, I like them both, but that's the one oh. I'm going to tell people. Okay, I like but it. But I will tell them. It's the second theory. There's a couple of theories, yeah, but this is of, my favorite. But the important
1: thing is the term didn't come around until the late 40s. And there right. were people doing stand-up before it was called stand-up.
0: The first guy, God, I loved reading about this guy, Artemis Ward, Yeah. whose real name is actually Charlie Brown. Correct. Charles, Fantas- Charles Brown. <laughs> Charles yeah, I know, Brown. Guessed. Fantastic. And um, Artemis Ward... Didn't have the sweater with the... No, Jaggedy sadly, <laughs> sadly, no, a real miss on his yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A full head of hair, as <laughs> yeah, far as yeah, I could yeah, see. Yes. Nice mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he started by writing letters, um, or writing letters, satirical, funny letters for Vanity Fair that took Not, off.
1: Well, it was before Vanity Fair, just for the a paper in Cleveland called the Cleveland Plain Dealer. It still exists. Oh, yeah. It's still a newspaper. Hey. So he would write these funny kind of letters, and they went viral, whatever, whatever that was mm-hmm. at the time, there was something in a newspaper you could print it in your local newspaper for free. It was like a law back then. Yeah. So so he became famous as a funny guy, like, oh, he's this funny writer guy. And there was a number of them. He wasn't the only one. But
0: And the funny, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, was sort of like Rosanna Dana Dana, in that there were real deliberate misspellings yes, and yes, very yeah. deliberate mispronunciations that heightened the the misunderstanding right, of the right, author right, right. in an a, a particularly You can hilarious read them. They, way. Don't,
1: they don't really translate. And this is something we I talk about to the kids. It's in the book. I'm gonna talk about you that stand up comedy in particular doesn't really as a rule doesn't really translate out of its generation. Mm-hmm. It sort of goes bad like milk. It's just Yeah. Because you're it's specifically all the terms, all the things you're making fun of are for that time. So Artemis Ward, you know, he's Making twelve dollars a week. Yeah. And he's a famous guy. And he has to cover the local entertainment scene. So he goes to see a minstrel show. And then one of the guys in the minstrel show, which was this kind of blackface blackface entertainment, huge in America, mm-hmm. huge around the world. Like the yeah. first huge big entertainment export. He sees a guy and he's doing some of his bits from an Artemis Ward letter from the newspaper.
0: That's me. That's my stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So he And was that
0: when he really realized mm-hmm. that my written humor can get on its feet and be on stage? 100%.
1: That's and a great is, way to put it. And why That's is great... that
0: guy doing it and making Runs the money the why I can be doing? it? guy over yeah. here, yeah. <laughs> but what I love is that, and, and tell me if I'm mistaken, is no. that he was the first one that when he took it on stage as himself, he didn't do it in a minstrel show. He went on a lecture circuit. Yep. And it's so compoundingly funny to me and it sounds like the audience too because he billed himself as a serious speaker he sort of put out posters ahead sort of advertising that he was gonna be there so people
1: people knew he was a funny guy
0: oh they knew artemis ward Ward was was a satirical yes okay but his presentation was still as if he took himself very seriously he the character believed he was a lecturer yeah
1: except the whole gimmick was he would never talk about the topic of the lecture
0: that's what was it babes and What was the the subject he says his first was like babes babes in in the wood, babes in the babes in the
1: wood, which was, I think, a poem. It's like a famous thing. But at the time, there was this lecture circuit called the Lyceum circuit where like people would talk about the Revolutionary War or botany or astrology. Sounds like a podcast. (laughs) No, no, it's it's actually like um, what's the word for like TED Talks. It's like Mm -hmm. an hour TED Talk. So people would pay a quarter, 50 cents and listen to somebody because educate, we're trying to educate. And so he subverted that form and became a sensation doing this act.
0: And just traveled all over the place and, and fantastically went to Europe.
1: Yeah, that's and how traveled famous Europe he was. Yeah. And
0: then got tuberculosis and died.
1: Yeah, age 32. Very much on brand for somebody living in the honestly, 1800s. Right? Honestly, if
0: we had had planes, it would have been a plane crash. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, exactly. we know, but this is something I'm curious. Now, I know he's he met and was friendly with Mark Twain, who we're going to talk about in a moment. Yeah. But also Abe Lincoln, was well, a big fan of yes, his or New Here's what was. happened
1: when he left Cleveland to go to New York to try this circuit to try to be the funny lecturer guy. He was like, "I need some money," so he published a compilation of all his articles into a book. Oh, does that Am I, am I saying that right? Yeah. So Lincoln loved that book, a collection of his funny letters. Yeah, and yeah. supposedly before he did the Emancipation Proclamation, read from the book to his staff. Well, he was uh, a huge fan.
0: And Mark Twain met him and dug him and is not was like
1: that. Fa- said he was the funniest guy he funniest ever. Funniest guy I ever saw. And Mark Twain, uh, he was still Sam Clemens at this time, was right. a very funny guy also.
0: Well, and I love Mark Twain. I, my my Tell interests me. collide. I mean, Mark Twain, there will be an episode devoted entirely to Mark Twain because I used to live on a riverboat on the Mississippi River. Oh, wow. He was famously a riverboat captain. One of my favorite books of his is called Life on the Mississippi. Yes.
1: Um, is it Mark Twain, a river?
0: It is. It's a so way nautical, of, yeah. of measuring depth. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. yeah. Because yeah. it's difficult to measure the depth of a moving water. It's a different mathematical formula than in a I lake or you this, this is so. good for me right Mark now. Twain. Mm, this is very mm-hmm. good for me. No, I like <laughs> learning. <laughs> Also, I love Frankenstein. That was my very first episode. Mary Shelley? Was on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. And I wrote a one-woman show and was uh, performed as Mary Shelley around the country for a couple of years. I love it. And Mark Twain was buddies with Nikolai Tesla. Oh, yeah. And had a lot of very um, cross interests with like early electricity and early electric experiments and, of course, stand-up comedy. So somehow Mark Twain... Whenever I get tits deep no, into he, something I'm really interested in, this dazzling, the big, mustachioed I know. Here's motherfucker the comes thing wandering. We found
1: about, <laughs> <here's> the thing <laughs> we found out about Mr. Twain, was that he, uh, there's no recording of his voice. No, I know. And there's only a little movie, you know, at that place in Connecticut. So we really don't wow. know what he sounded like. There's a guy who did an impression of him that I've heard. So... It's really interesting, and he loses a lot of his money. Do you know how he lost his money? No. You know? Oh, no. This is ridiculous. So he's this the most celebrated author in America, basically international. Like, yeah. Oh, this, the you know, the backwoods, freedom yeah. guys. You have
0: in here, if I can find it quickly, his touring schedule yeah, yeah, for yeah, like yeah. a he's month tor- in December, and yeah. it's like four cities a day. Yeah. I mean, he's. And no cars. No like, cars. Like, I don't no know. Is, is it, yeah. is
1: it, is it, I assume he's horse-drawn carriages?
0: Yeah. Here, we've got like from December 1st <laughs> to December 31st. Right. It looks like 1869. Man. Yeah, yeah. Dude ha- is in a different city <laughs> doing- every night. <laughs>
1: Wild, right? Wild, yeah. Did he work on Christmas? Can you check that?
0: Yeah, no. no, he
1: didn't. He worked on
0: Christmas Eve in Slattersville, Rhode Island. Yeah, and then and then the twenty seventh, he was in took, New
1: Haven. Took two days off to get to New took Haven. Took a couple of days off. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um, so, but he moves to San Francisco then in eighteen sixty so four. But then how does he lose his money? I want to know.
1: Because he felt the publishers were ripping him off. The oldest story in the world, right? Same thing with the blues musicians and the record deals. The mm-hmm. whole thing it never stops. Mm-hmm. Never stops. Billy yeah. Joel, this all never ends. Yeah. The story never ends. Artists create, and then somebody rips them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, a Perfect yeah. example. So he's like, God, these guys are ripping me off. I'm selling all these, you know, Huck, Sawyer, yeah. the, the sequel. You know, this guy invents a new printing press. He's like all right, I'm going to invest in this printing press, and I'm going to print my own books. And it was the best printing press in the world when it worked. Yeah. Didn't work. Da, da, da. He lost all his money. Shit. Uh, I call it a startup. So he lost all his money in a startup. <laughs> it's like, how can I make money? I mean, how old did, was he here? Did it feel like... I think it he's was... like in his 50s or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. And so he was like, how can I make some money? And then, boom, oh, yeah, let me do Artemis Ward style. And, mm-hmm. of course... Becomes so much bigger than Artemis Ward ever could have imagined. Yeah. And tours the whole world. I mean, yeah. forget about New Haven. Yeah. He tours India. It's, it's ridiculous where he goes. International superstar. International superstar doing and this spreads comedy like
0: tour. This American brand before we were even aware that we needed yeah. a new brand. But it does bring us to our third... Forefather father on your list. Oh my god. Girl. Burt Williams, 1890s. Yes. And one of the, I I had no idea who this was. I learned about him fresh from your book. Burt Williams is a, a Black American. He's not African, he's from the Bahamas. Right. But he uh makes his name as a blackface performer in minstrel shows. I didn't know
1: that well, that it, Black
0: Americans performed in blackface.
1: Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Famously, they did. He was only in a minstrel show for a little while. Then he teams up with a guy in the minstrel show, and they go out as a comedy team. So he had an empathy about him as opposed to, oh, I'm just this guy just going to make fun of black people and just try to make some money off of it. And it was, yeah, right to the end. And a megastar.
0: And he was one of the first voices recorded on a, a record. Victor on a
1: major label. Yeah, yeah. I know the, he had a the music. The Ziegfeld Follies. Yes. He was so popular as a comedian that they like, Ziegfeld was like, he's going to be in our show. and. There scores of course, people like, like, uh, you can't do this. This has been all white. And he's like, well, guess what? There's only one person in the show that uh, I can't fire, and that's Burt Williams. Mm-hmm. So you want to be in the show or don't you? And they're like, oh, I guess we're in the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. It was really, you know, and obviously, do you, remember, do you know W.C. Fields? Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. He said that Burt Williams was the funniest man he ever saw and the saddest man he ever met. Because oh. he had these, you know, mm. he had these, you know, sure. go through the back door, of the hotel, and mm-hmm. the thing, you know, just whatever. And dig, mm-hmm. I'm just in the north. Yeah. This is in New York City. Yeah. So he had to endure all of that stuff. And so he was just an incredible talent. And it's funny when I was a kid, mm. right after the civil rights era, that's how old I am. Like, people dismissed him because of the blackface and all of that. Yeah. He was like, we don't even want to talk about that. You know, we have Richard Pryor. The thing, like, we don't, yeah. this is too embarrassing. But in within the last 15 years, there's been numerous books written about him. And yeah. he's been re- recast as, like, sort of this uh, comedy pioneer mm-hmm. and incredible. I, I just love talking about that guy. But I
0: love it. Uh, you know, yeah. well, you, you include him as a forefather for oh, a reason. I mean, he originated a lot of stuff and inspired... The next guy, Will Rogers, if, if I'm not mistaken, Will Rogers performed with, with Bur- Bur- yes, Bur- Burt yeah, Williams. Yes, yeah.
1: they were different kind of, but yes, obviously. They were,
0: yeah, didn't mimic his style, but. But had yes, a- they
1: worked in the Ziegfeld Follies, and Will Rogers is kind of the father of political comedy. Mm-hmm. He would, he had his thing. It's like all, I, all I know is what I read in the paper, and he would chew gum and he'd be an all shucks kind of guy. He's from Oklahoma, actually, before even Oklahoma existed. And here's something that's not in the book that will be in the new version whenever I get around to writing that. I just read a quote from him. He said, "Like, it the joke will be funnier if it's fresher."
0: Hmm. Mm. Interesting. That huh? is interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, like, so whenever you see whatever Fallon, Colbert, fresh. anybody, you know, any, John Stewart, uh, Trevor, Samantha Bee, like, they're all doing that's as fresh as material as you can get. That's like from today,
0: ripped from the headlines. Yeah.
1: Will Rogers is the first one to do this. Yeah,
0: and he and
1: also the first one to. Host the Academy Awards,
0: and um, he was the first to perform jokes about the president
1: to, to the president. Yeah. It was
0: Woodrow Wilson. Yes, and in I Baltimore, find that in Baltimore, in Baltimore, yeah. And if any president deserved a little lampooning, that's that so interesting. Fuck. I
1: was just reading a like a poll of like historians of like the great presidents, and I'm really surprised he still is really up there
0: with the bad ones,
1: with the good ones. No, yes. I'm telling you, I am t- just reading it yesterday.
0: Ugh, they're wrong. Okay. I'll talk to him. I okay. mean, he was all right. I just feel like... Because
1: of the League of Nations or something? Yeah, or, he did. I mean, right? I
0: feel like the poor guy... I mean, he was better than Hoover. Hoover sucked. And Hoover was, like, right after him, so it's hard not to compare. But, like, I think Woodrow Wilson just had it first rough because he's tits deep uh, in World all, War One, and everyone's like, you know what we need to do is, like, ban drinking. And he was like, what the fuck? Right. You know.
1: First of all... To correct you on your own podcast, you may mm. want to go back, but he's did not, Hoover did not follow Woodrow Wilson. Mm. You're forgetting Calvin Coolidge.
0: <laughs> I am forgetting. Calvin. Am I, I forgetting don't know. Calvin Why Coolidge? Why
1: are you forgetting Calvin Coolidge? Oh, God, well, That'll have, be, what did he do to it? you? I what don't did know. he do to I mean, oh, this yes, I, I love it. I feel so badly about this. First of all, okay, this is going to be another correction.
0: Oh, God, Wayne, I knew you were going to humble me. Go is ahead. Is this
1: really bad? No, I, I really want apologize. It. Give it to me. No, I can if take I make a mistake,
0: I want to know. So. Give it to me.
1: You can't feel badly. You can feel bad.
0: All right. So now we got history in English. A little English. All right. All right. I feel bad. Yeah. And now I feel worse. (laughs) Did I say that correctly? I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. (laughs) No, just because I used to say that all the time. And a friend of (laughs) mine corrected me and was like, thank you.
0: It's not badly. It's not badly. Can
1: I give you the example he used? Yes. He goes, if you were a like worked for an apple or an orange company, Uh uh-huh. And you had a field of fruit to see if it's ripe, uh-huh. and you felt it and wasn't ripe, but it actually was, then uh-huh. you could feel badly. I see. But you can't. But I, as a person, as my a, emotional yes. state, I cannot feel you badly. You can feel bad. I understand. So it's like you're a bad fruit feeler.
0: You didn't, You yeah, you didn't do that well, you did it badly. Yes. But your feelings are either good or bad.
1: Yeah. Sorry. You know what? I know really, listen, is, I like no, this is this good. Things. We're
0: gonna do. We're gonna have a quiz. Does that sound like a jerk? I no. don't. I really no. like. you have no idea. Know it alls like me. Yeah. Love knowing more. Even if, Even, if Even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. Even if we get a little have, humble pie. That couldn't have hurt because that Because now I get to tell some other poor yeah, sad sack.
1: That was, uh, jump on them. <laughs> um,
0: really quickly before our break, yeah. I do want to talk about the different styles of shows which you touched on. Because you mentioned a minstrel show and, and what kind of specified a minstrel show, which yeah. is the egregious, demeaning yeah. representation of black people. But in a minstrel show, as awful as it is, we have them to thank for the End Men, which sort of set up that back and forth kind of comedy duo. They go and do a new city. Hey, uh, you Duluth with the bridge and the blonde. They were improvising about their new city. And the stump speech, the Midway stump speech, was originated and we have to incredible,
1: Incredible you read all of this and retained I
0: even underlined things. Look, I wrote notes. I wrote notes in your book. I love it. Yes. Um, And then then you talked about the, the Ziegfeld Follies, which is, would you say that's more of a review?
1: It is a review but it's with a specific cast and like if you go to you know what IMDb is Oh yes there's also one for Broadway so all those Ziegfeld shows are part of are considered a Broadway show cuz it uh-huh. opens it's reviewed it lasts a certain time.
0: Permanent cast. They got to show up at a thing. and Right. And yeah. then they
1: could, they took it on a little tour. They would go.
0: Whereas your minstrel shows, your, your vaudeville shows would be like, these two days, for we've got week, the crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. contortionists, and then they're going to go to another place, yes. and we're going to be able to feature someone else. Yeah. And vaudeville, the thing that sort of specified, because some of them would have, like a performer, an individual performer might be in all of these genres. Yes. But when they were in vaudeville... They were clean. Like, that was what specified oh, yes. vaudeville was squeaky, squeaky clean. Good for the gentlemen. Good for the ladies. Good for the kids. Wayne Fetterman would thrive in vaudeville. Of course. Don Brody would not. <laughs> right. Because, ooh, and this was another frame. The going blue. We in comedy, stand-up in particular, they say you're blue material. You might hear that. Oh, that comic goes blue. Which means dirty. It can doesn't mean the... sexy or swearing or... Right.
1: Did, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Do you recall? Uh the first time you heard that term, and someone explained it to you.
0: Um. E- yes. Um. In part, I think it's because I've always done corporate entertainment. Oh. And there, I feel like they were really familiar, even if they weren't necessarily in the entertainment field. They knew when they spoke to entertainers to that our word, our, word, our code word, was blue because they didn't want to just say "don't say fuck" or yeah, talk yeah. about sex. Yeah. Going blue, sort of covered so politics. You, right. And at sex. that time, you
1: were like, oh, I guess, yeah.
0: Yeah. But but it wasn't... Explain to me what, that blue just means being dirty, naughty, whatever. But the origin of where that came from, I learned actually from your book. Yeah. Which is...
1: Do you want to tell it or a show? No, I, I... Want you. I, had I couldn't be. This is a beaming. Look <laughs> at my face. You're getting it back. You're getting it back. So yeah, like, if
0: you were in a vaudeville show, specifically vaudeville, because they built it as clean, and it was really important to them that it stayed clean. Polite, and they were polite. polite. Was, yep. They didn't want to offend, and they, and they were selling tickets. Let's not make a mistake here. It was about keeping the audiences coming. That if you as a performer had done something impolite, whether you body, maybe what? your costume, it could have been something, whatever. You got an envelope, a blue envelope. Inside, they had detailed the elements of your bit that they found objectionable, and your job as the performer was to change it, because if they saw it again, you were fired. Right. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A plus? Yes. Yay! Yeah, yeah, oh, I yeah, live yeah, yeah, for yeah. those. That's mm. awesome. Yeah. And burlesque, then, of course, is show but, me them titties. Well... Maybe not the whole titty, but...
1: Yeah. And it eventually became strip-teasing. Yes. yes. But there was comedy was a specific that was another kind there was a little more sketch comedy than the stand-ups but there were stand-ups that were definitely worked in burlesque and if it was a real act we might go yeah okay we're gonna book you on this circuit and then if you do well and get good reviews from the managers you can move to a bigger circuit the big time
0: and the big time you're doing fewer shows a day you're getting paid more that's what you want yeah. Hot damn. Um, you know vaudeville. I love this stuff, man. I didn't know, for example, the Marx Brothers yeah. were basically three racial stereotypes. You've got Groucho is kind of a German stereotype. Uh, you've got Harpo is an Irish yep. style guy. And uh, Chico is Italian. And yep. that, that people at the time would have recognized, oh, this is the, the Italian guy, the Irish guy, and the yeah. German guy. It's so, so fantastic. We, and this
1: is the start of, in a weird way, cancel culture in stand-up. hmm in that, especially Irish groups and Catholic groups were like, when they would see Irish stereotypes, they're like, God, we're, we, look, we just Damn came it. over here from, we, we're hungry. We, we were hungry. We're the potatoes. We're trying yeah. to get a foot. We can barely be a cop yeah. here. Like, we need some shoes. I I'm going to the vaudeville thing, and the Irish guy is a drunk and a thing. And yeah. Like, uh, can we stop this? Yeah. And they would, like, I don't know if they pick at theaters, but they'd say they would, uh, like, throw a stink bomb in the theater or something like that. Like, it was a real thing. Wow. The, yeah.
0: I, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, people were was offended. It, was it primarily
0: com- the Irish, or did the Italians and the
1: Germans? I mean, it tended to be... They,
0: the Irish were so discriminated against yeah. in general. Yeah, I think they were yeah.
1: very, yes.
0: And we're like, well, you know what, we're going to do this for about another 120 years, and then we're <laughs> going to see if
1: maybe we can start doing something different. But even then, comedians were like, oh, you can't do comedy anymore. What, I can't do my Irish bit anymore? So Uh nothing really changes. Nothing
0: really changes. Well, and and it brings us really into the the women because um, still, I mean, and I take no offense to it, but I I can see and I can empathize the like Monty Python's representation of women, Mm -hmm. which they always did fairly well. I mean, I I didn't feel necessarily like it was a lampooning of women. It was more... The the they were like these hot 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 fuckable women that were like the objects of desire in their sketches, or right. they dressed as these really reasonable, intelligent, well spoken women, but they just couldn't somehow <laughs> see their way to have a, a, a woman a little, be funny, yeah. and uh, so that was always a bit of a of a painful point. But but there were Fanny Bryce, you mentioned briefly. She's one of my favorites, of course. Oh. Barbara Streisand represents her in Funny Girl. And the, just the idea. I mean, I read a lot about her playing. Is it Snooky, the little girl? Baby Snooks. Baby Snooks. Yeah. And um, just how much she loved I that think character. Say
1: an Italian girl Snooki. from New Jersey. <laughs> Snooky
0: was going to say. I mean, they're both very small and adorable, but yeah, totally different. And then this gal, I read, I read about in your book, and I looked for more information on her. Oh, um, you did, Elsie Janis. She was very funny. She was a comedian, and during World War One. Uh, over 20 years before the USO, this broad gets <laughs> on the back of a pickup truck and goes to the front lines and entertains the troops with yep. comedy and songs, yep. sing along. I'm getting and, goosebumps and, and, and right now.
1: No, she's incredible. Just I an, love that you know about. It's one of my great things that, like, that I hope there's like a biopic about her. And she did yes. impressions of men. Like, the whole thing is crazy. It's crazy. And
0: she just seems like, boy, you want to have a beer with Elsie Janis. No, there's
1: there's some, you know, she has a book. She she writes about it. You know, she was called the sweetheart of the AEF, American Expeditionary Forces. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's incredible.
0: (laughs) Can you believe it? Elsie Janis. I mean, by now, you've got to be just kitchen to get your hands on Wayne's book. Do it. It's a quick read and it'll make you sound so smart at parties. (laughs) And speaking of parties, we've scheduled our first ever live recording of Hilf. Yes! You will see the wild gestures that accompany this voice and hear all the bullshit I usually edit out. It's happening on May 26th in Glendale, California and you're invited. For more information on who will be there and how to get tickets, just... Follow me, follow follow me, follow me
1: follow. follow me, follow me, follow follow me, follow me, follow me,
0: follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow now here's what I want to do for the second part Wayne. I I'm know. Holding on. I'm hold holding on, on. Hold yeah. on to that microphone. So we we get into kind of the technology. I feel like I feel like starting in sort of post World War 1, kind mm-hmm. of between the world wars, like so much history and especially a lot of American history. It runs parallel to our technological innovations and and sure. how how the the art form evolves evolves along with our stuff. And in 1913, we get the record Cohen on the telephone, yeah, which you describe as a, a Hebrew dialect individual, a comedian who's, who's the the bit is he's a first time telephone user talking to his landlord. Yep,
1: trying to talk to his landlord. Yeah. Hello, are you there. Hello. Hello. What? What number do I run? Well, what numbers have you got? Uh, excuse- and people fucking loved it. They lost couldn't. Their minds.
0: They lost their minds. And there were covers. This was the thing that blew my mind. People would do covers of comedy albums, which. The only thing like that I've heard of today <laughs> is sometimes uh, the the comedy club in town, Burbank Flappers Comedy mm-hmm. Club, will do Dead Comedy, Dead well, Comedians oh, Night. I love it.
1: I would, I would love to go to that. Yeah, place.
0: Dead Comedians Night. And so the, the bit is, it's like the first time, maybe the only time in your career that you are allowed right, to, do, to Rodney, do someone else's yeah. material. Yeah, Rodney Dangerfield, uh, Mitch Hedberg. I mean, people are, and it. sometimes they're doing impressions of the comedian, but sometimes they're just doing the bits and, yeah. and it's huge. It's hilarious. But other than that, I mean, the idea of a comedy cover seems well, so foreign to me. I
1: Just throw this out as a possibility. Yes. If you think of, oh, you're a grand old flag, George M. Cohan song. Like that came out, a lot of people covered that song. Yeah.
0: I feel like it makes sense for the origin of it because you're sort of doing like, you play the violin, I play an Irish guy. Right. You play the piano, (laughs) I play a a bumbling hick from wherever. And so if you can play this instrument, you can play this character. Yeah. But it would seem to me that once comedy got more personal, Where I'm telling you my specific observations that originate from me and my life experience and my unique, hilarious view on the world, it would feel more like theft for you to take that than Uh, than to just be the Irish guy. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, Yes. And I think it was like Lenny Bruce was like one of the first to like Mm. write stuff that was so specific to him that I want to get this quote right, but someone said that it went from stealing comedy te- material went from being a misdemeanor to a felony. Right. That it was like something everyone kind of did and wink, wink, and then at, at that point it was like, no. No. This is now a different kind of...
0: Well, and also, we talk about Lenny Bruce, actually, a previous episode about the history of the F word. Ended oh, really? up being sort of the history of profanity. Oh, yeah. And oh. one of the ways that you I can even... I love the uh,
1: different streams <laughs> that run into this. <laughs> it's It's really almost fun. like a river.
0: It is. Hey-ho, oh, one of my favorites. I think that people's relationship to the profane... Kind of explains where some of this stuff comes from. Because after the records, we get the radio, 1926, NBC. Never stopped after that. (laughs) You talked a little bit about the nightclubs and how uh, Prohibition got us into the nightclubs. And I do want to stop just for a heartbeat and give a little love to the MCs. Because this is my bread and butter. When I'm not doing the podcast and when I'm doing stand-up, 60% of the time, I'm an MC and I love to MC. And um, for those of you who may not be in the world of comic comedy, the MC is the first person to get on stage. They generally welcome the crowd. And then, depending on the structure, they're usually introducing the lineup. So, after each comic is done, hello, thank you so much, and introducing the next person. In the case of one of the clubs I work in, I run a raffle at the end of the show. Some comics like to MC, love it because it's more stage time and because they get to improvise a little bit between comics and you just sort of have a, it is a master of ceremonies. Who doesn't like the word master? Masturbator, I mean, there's, there's ways yeah, that it can I work. It. But, um, but some comics hate it and they they find it uh, intimidating even though they have, they like being on stage clearly or telling jokes, it's more uh, of public speaking and public speaking can feel very different than stand-up comedy. Um, or it feels like a demotion that you have your quote unquote proper comics and then you have the lowly MC who's well, just there to Well, this is a great question you. for you. Okay. This is yes. a great
1: comedy question. This is a side, sidebar. Ready. When you MC, Yeah. And you finish your, let's say you do 10 minutes to warm up the crowd and stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, somebody is sitting, let's say, uh, uh, Sam Morel's waiting to go on stage. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you say now, are you ready for a show? I know a lot of comedians, MCs do that, and they go, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Do you say our next comic, or do you say our first comic?
0: That is a very pertinent question, <laughs> because I very recently, <laughs> deliberately started saying your next comic.
1: Because you wanted to include yourself as a comic. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. There were times I'd love MCing so much, I almost had to like, apologize, like, or or i tell people, you know, I'm doing this show, I, I'm just the MC or, you know, I'm, I'm, it's Leno. I'm, I'm I'm performing with Leno. I'm, I'm just MCing for him. Mm -hmm. It's something. And when I read your book, honestly, I was like, God damn it. The MCs are a thing. And I was reading about Jackie Gleason and Mm -hmm. Nipsey Russell, Mm -hmm. these house MCs who seem to really like embrace being the captain of the ship and running their show. And, um, and so I've I've puffed up a little bit now oh, yeah. in the role well, of MC.
1: Well, when yes, yes, there are certain rooms where the MC is the funniest person on the show.
0: What I like about it too is the chemistry of it because if you if someone bombs. Right. has a really rough time, you really don't skewer them. At least I don't. I don't want to be like, that poor piece of shit really right. sucked. Don't you guys hated that, didn't you? Right. At the same time...
1: You, you have to acknowledge.
0: You, yeah, they will not trust you if you come up there and are like, yeah, give it up. Okay, yeah, yeah. next comic. So they're, you also kind of want to clear the air, frankly, for the for the person coming up. And similarly, if someone is killing and the audience is eating out of their hand and they were on fire, you want to kind of jump on that comet and be like, you guys are feeling it, right? I've got a few more jokes and you can't do that. It messes up the flow of the show and the, you know, so it's a, there's an art in that too that I don't mind admitting. This is where we get to Vegas In the 1940s, after World War II, so much boom happens, and you get Shecky Green, and you get Don Rickles, and you get...
1: In a very specific... There was big rooms in Vegas, and they also had lounge shows. Mm. And lounge shows were designed to keep people in the casinos. It's all about gambling. Right. The more people there, the more gambling, the more money that that hotel makes. It's a very simple equation. So uh, Don Rickles' schedule was midnight... Two a.m. and then a five ten breakfast show.
0: I couldn't believe that when I read it. I couldn't believe. I mean, is that still got to be? Are there performers no, that no, are still no. doing they that don't, now? No, they're no.
1: they corporate breakfast so. show. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Because they would have big shows in the. Because they don't want them competing with. Right. They're trying to get people to go see whatever Liberace or these big names or Sophie Tucker. So they would have these comedians in these smaller areas, the lounge, and that they, he would do more what I call up close comedy or table Mm -hmm. comedy. So that's how that kind of improvisation and you've seen, you know, crowd work comedians.
0: Totally. And there were like two, it felt like there were sort of two things that seemed to sort of appropriate, like why the schedule was there. One was... They don't like anyone thinking about the time. I mean, if you have a show that's starting at 2.30 in the morning, you just don't feel like it's that late, right? right? Because things are just getting
1: going and, you know. And they're pumping oxygen in and, yeah.
0: And it was also, um, it felt like a a response to some of the clean, the radio was making sure things were really clean.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. And they were able to say what they wanted. And also the performers. So let's say Sinatra is playing the main room. He would come to the lounge at 2 o'clock and sit and get heckled by Jackie Green or by Mm. Don Rick. So now they're like, oh, my God, we just saw this guy in the thing. This is so cool what's happening here.
0: I'm going to stay up and gamble a few more hours. Yeah right. If I'm, I mean, if this, if if right. uh, Frank and then Sinatra, Sinatra would go in to here. the
1: table, you know, they wanted the entertainers to go to the tables. They're like, oh my God, I'm gambling what, what, next to Dean Martin. This is ridiculous. That's what we call a string of luck. Maybe you should ride this
0: <laughs> lucky trail. Um And then we get in the 1950s television, of course, and Ed Sullivan. And mm-hmm. you talk about the Texaco
1: Star Theater. Star
0: yeah. Theater, which was forgotten to me now, but was certainly the, was the leader big originally. The big,
1: the big bang moment for television yeah. was that television show hosted by Milton Berle, and then he played all during nightclubs, was one of the highest paid guys, and never really made it in radio, never made it in the movies, wasn't like Bob Hope, and then television became his thing. He was 40 years old when he got that job, and was on the cover of Time and Newsweek in the same week. I mean, it was like... Like water tables would drop after a show because everyone went to the bathroom. And fl- I mean, it was insane. Oh, my God.
0: You said it was like 80% of the yes, market share yeah, or something at yeah. some point. And then Ed Sullivan was sort of his, was a competitor. On a different was, night, on,
1: a, on Sunday night. But, but was not enjoying the same success at the beginning. Not at the beginning. They they wanted to fire him so bad. I've just been reading a lot of books about him. Yeah.
0: Well, he is kind of an underwhelming dude. Like, even to, Yeah, I mean, like you a, watch him now and you're like, yeah,
1: yeah, he's just awkward and, yeah. yeah. But eventually that became his brand and comedians would do impressions of him. Yeah. And so that, like, elevated Sullivan. But, yeah. Well, we
0: have, in Aladdin, the genie does an impression of Ed Sullivan. Right. Which I, I remember at the time being like, I'm 14 or whatever, like, <laughs> what is this? And as I got older, I was like, oh, my God, that was Robin Williams, obviously, yeah, just doing yeah. his thing and the animators went with it. But it was so... It was so good. And then we have what I, I mean, and one of the things that has always intrigued me in all realms of history is when you see I'm not gonna use the word repeat, because history doesn't repeat. It's a spiral. It goes in circles.
1: I couldn't agree. But with it doesn't you
0: more. go on the same groove. How could it be? How it's could always it? a groove in or out and a spiral. But it felt like that in the sixties and seventies. The return to the record or the boom, second kind of boom of records was in part a response to how clean comedy had to be for television. So Ed Sullivan had made it so clean that if your comedy had more blue material, you weren't going to be able to do that in the biggest venue that was out there, which was television and radio. So you would record these records, which were then called party records because people would be like, you guys want to hear this. You know, the kids are in bed. And I've got this fantastic Lenny Bruce or whatever yeah. that they would bring out. And the old timers, it became a generational divide because you've got these guys who are making $10,000 a week doing a lounge act that are like, why would I sell my put my act on a record?
1: Made no sense.
0: It doesn't make any sense. And as I was thinking about it, it seems to me very much like YouTube right now. Like 100%. For me... I could if I did a viral video on TikTok or YouTube, it would serve me very well because most of the people don't know who I am, and it right. would be an introduction and a great way to put myself out there. There would be no motivation for Kevin Hart or a known comedian to do a free YouTube TikTok unless there was already a promotion and an right. advertisement or some because he's a known commodity. So it seems to me that these old timers were looking at records like in much the same way. Why yeah, would they couldn't
1: believe, and they didn't think those. And in a weird way, there's even a. Different nuance to the whole thing was like, oh, yeah you you can't headline Vegas. You're not even a great comedian. You're playing these little clubs and recording these albums. Little do they understand that those big rooms in Vegas and stuff were slowly dying and being replaced by a more intimate kind of personal comedy, which. You mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it was Lenny Bruce and all of these guys, mm-hmm. and you know, and Mort niche. Saul.
0: And Niche. Like if there was, if comedy and was a was big so, like yeah. gender, like we're mm-hmm. making fun of men and women. Yeah. But now, when we're talking about New York and my neighborhood and the people I know, it was just so much more specialized. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And then 1970s, we get TV again with the Saturday Night Live and the Tonight Show this is moves late. This is from late New night, York. Late night television. Late night. Television. Those television. are both late that's night right. TV shows. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. But it was, but it was like comedy's new little hobby hole. <laughs> well, it, it, <laughs> yeah.
1: well, there had been the Tonight Show in the 60s that had comedians on and stuff, so it wasn't mm-hmm. new, but it got huge in the seventies when Carson, especially when Carson moved to LA.
0: And inviting people to come and the couch and all of
1: that. But he had done that before in New York, but it just for some reason it was just a perfect convergence. You know, we're off to the races. We're off to the races.
0: And the boom of the eighties, the technology is what ushered this in. Any place you say that had a liquor license, access to talent, a working microphone, and some tables and chairs could be a comedy club and depending, was a fairly successful comedy club. People were going to see comedy. Comedians were traveling. You mentioned the Tribble
1: Run. Still exists. Somebody just I, did a documentary about it. I can't Somebody wait. just, Leno's in it. Your really? Your buddy course, Jay Leno is in of it. Of course he is. Yeah. Well, the Tribble, for those who don't Have know. Have you done it?
0: No. I'm, I'm so intrigued by it. So the Tribble Run is is a circuit. It's it's a, but not exactly a circle, but it's basically the West. It's part Montana Idaho, and Colorado, Idaho. Yeah. Yep. And it, you say it's famous and considered a rite of passage. That like for
1: many comedians I've spoke to, you're
0: a traveling comic. You're hitting the road like this particular region. What was it about the triple Run that made it different than performing? Just because somewhere you else?
1: made basically no money, mm. you basically broke even for the whole run, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you put you know four thousand miles on your car. Yeah. You know, going up in these mountains and stuff like that. And it was just like, oh, this is what you do. To learn how to play in bars in you know Missoula, Montana. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna have to learn this skill. Yeah. And then can I these jokes translate to a bigger room? And then I may play. Yeah. So it was just, and the guy who set it up. I mean, it's been going on for a long time since the '80s, I believe. And it's just, it's a stupid name. <laughs> and
0: where does it come from? Is Tribble? Is it the guy? It's the, the guy. name. It's the, oh, guy's oh, name. Okay. it's the guy's name.
1: And. And but there was another there's a comedy car- caravan that was in like the South and stuff uh-huh. they, were, they were these tours. so
0: and it makes sense. Uh, I do a lot of comedy about being from rural Wisconsin uh-huh. and I started doing comedy out here in Los Angeles, right. So when I went home, mm-hmm. the reason I was like, I'm gonna do my set and see it's, to your point. Does my material about being from the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin work right, right. in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, or have I been sort of relying on the stereotypes and the presumptions that this mm-hmm. LA audience has? And it worked.
1: Nice. I nice. stood up.
0: I stood up on a chair <laughs> on bingo night in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, did and it, did I you killed. You have a microphone. I did, but it was um, it was like a bingo. It was a Britney Spears oh, sort yeah, of headset yeah. okay. with the speaker on your chest. Oh, really? And. Uh, yeah, it went really well. It went really well. So now, that was, I think that was, the yeah.
1: important thing you're missing is in nightclubs, in vaudeville, in burlesque, in reviews, Ziegfeld Follies, there was not... There sometimes would be multiple comedians on the show, but there wouldn't be all comedians. Comedy right. clubs is all comedians. The right. idea of it was revolutionary.
0: And that was the 80s.
1: That No, that started in the 60s with the improv and then the improv. Catch a Rise of Star, and the comedy store opens in 72.
0: As a matter of fact, I do remember there's a point in your book where you said there was a club that had set up basically a stage and the idea was, was it, it was in New York. It was Yeah, the improv. The improv. And the idea was we're going to get the Broadway performers to come down here after hours and it was just completely dominated by comics. Well, eventually, yeah. And uh, well, But
1: also because the guy who ran it liked comedy. Yeah. Bud Friedman was his name. Uh. And so he started putting up more and more comics. And the way I describe it is like, like locusts. They seized on this room. And, and then it, it became a thing. Yeah. And so that was the first, you know. And then soon the comedy store opens mm-hmm. and Catch a Rising Star. And then road clubs start opening. In, mm-hmm. in the late 70s. Yeah. So, but again, it was all uh, like when you do the triple run, you're not playing with a singer or a plate spinner or a juggler. Night it's going to be three comics, yeah. probably.
0: Yeah. And to the point who are where we're very now, tired. If you see, from driving.
1: <laughs> we're exhausted and don't know what time it is <laughs> yeah. and are very hungry.
0: When you see, still in a, in a comedy club, somebody come up with a guitar. People right. go, oh, oh yeah, and it's, it, but it's still, but yes, it's still or a with, dummy or something. Yes, yeah.
1: ventriloquist yeah. is the word for it. Um, <laughs> or, or just your your comedy partner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> the idea that it's just all comedy yeah. was just revolutionary.
0: And then the comedy festival started too, just yes. for laughs in 1983. Right, 1983. It yeah. started,
1: but it was only for French and that's right. Uh, you know, Euro people.
0: And then it expanded to half and half. Right, oh, where they would, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. they would do like half mm-hmm. English and half French. And now it is arguably for comics. Again, if, if uh, listeners who aren't in comedy, the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal is still considered kind of a gateway. And that if you can get there and if you do really well for a lot of people, that can well, be the Well, there's something of there. very
1: important that happened in the 90s. They started doing something called New Faces. Mm-hmm. So that was a specific, like, you are... Like, this is your chance to get in front of the industry and sort of like get a great foot on the ladder,
0: yeah. And like, um, Tomlinson, who are some other ones that came out of there?
1: Oh, uh, came out of New Face, yeah, I, mean, I, li- like, like, uh, yeah. I mean, it's the list of everyone, ridiculous. It's all of your, it's like, Nanji, I mean, it's like everyone like did new Chappelle, I Chappelle, mean, it's. Yeah. it's- just ridiculous
0: and then we had um one of the things i loved going through was sort of comedians in sitcoms and how that has just been a hand in glove from the beginning you talk about jackie gleason in the 50s andy griffith in the 60s bob newhart in the 70s bill cosby and Roseanne in the 80s, Seinfeld and Martin in the 90s. I mean, obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. David Spade and Ellen in the aughts, Louis and Jon Stewart in the 10s. I mean, it's obviously, as a consumers of television and especially anything that is destined to make us laugh, we just want the personalities
1: of these stand-up comedians. Yeah, but I mean, they can't, like, I mean, the whole point is that they have an advantage over those actors in that they already have a persona that's, been market tested mm-hmm. on well, the in- triple Run, <laughs> on the thing, on a thing, and yeah. you know, Wisconsin. We've been the country, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're already like, you know when, mm-hmm. you've seen comedians that audiences don't respond to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. it's, so if you're already getting layoffs, you've already, like, half of the, the sitcom game is over. That's why the show Seinfeld was so important, because he had been fired from a, another sitcom called Benson because he couldn't act. So the genius of Seinfeld is they built an incredible, next-level comedy talent all around him. So he didn't; have, all he had to do was play a guy named Jerry Seinfeld, who was a
0: comic, <laughs> right? Who and yeah. it
1: became a money-making machine for NBC, and they're like, oh. You don't even have to really be a great actor to do this right. if, if we handle this correctly.
0: Right. And, uh, and and
1: some were good. I mean, Ray Murman is excellent. Yeah. So, and and Roseanne. And Roseanne is excellent. Excellent. And I remember, because
0: yeah. Roseanne was very reflective of my... Mm-hmm city and my life and the jokes between my parents even rural wisconsin just being heavy and poor right right <laughs> you right. know it was like hey oh my god like fat funny poor people are the stars and those are my people <laughs> that you show know?
1: was so revolutionary I oh loved my god it, it was yeah. so
0: good i remember my parents got divorced when i was 10 and my mom's new boyfriend had cable oh That is when I fell in love with stand-up comedy because it was Caroline's Comedy Hour and the evening at the Improv, and I would just watch it. So you might have seen a young Wayne (gasps) Federman.
1: I probably did.
0: I probably did. I'll suit. My journals are very detailed. I will. Yeah. No,
1: I did. like seven or eight, evening at the improvs. Wayne,
0: here's what would happen to me acne prone, home perm, very <laughs> sad. Mom and dad are divorced, and I'm just watching how comedy all the time. And I would watch these comedy. Who do you remember? Huh. I remember Sam Kennison. Hard to forget. I remember him because he was oh, yeah, so, yeah, so funny. Course. I remember um, Paula Poundstone. So what
1: year is this? You're nine?
0: No, let's see. This would have been uh, 1992, oh, wow. oh, yeah. 1990, 1995-ish. Let me see. Who else do I remember seeing? Um, um, Jeff Foxworthy. Yeah. I remember seeing then. And who is the guy who had, He's he got big, The he's a ventriloquist. Jeff Dunham?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Who I didn't think was funny then, and God love him, I, I wish him no ill will. But I remember thinking, God, I don't think I like ventriloquists. And then I didn't see him again for like 30 years. And then uh, like 10 years ago, I was like, he was on every billboard, yeah, and he had yeah. this
1: like incredible. And I was like, those are the same puppets he was no, when I was 10. Like, he didn't have the terrorist puppet back then.
0: Maybe not the terrorist puppet, but the ones on the there he didn't were.
1: Didn't have Ahmed, <laughs> the dead terrorist.
0: Oh man. Anyway, I <laughs> those are the ones I remember. But the but the but Wayne the watching. The the packed crowd, which is, I mean, I was from the middle of nowhere. So just a room full of people was very exciting. Right. And kind of empathizing that moment when they would walk from the back of the theater through the crowd onto stage. I just thought, oh, my God, that has to be the best, worst moment of your life. Yeah,
1: that's pretty good. It is. I write it at the end. I said, uh, terrifying to thrilling. Right? Do you write that down? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Am I wrong?
0: Did I write it down? (laughs) It is the quote with which he ends his book, and so it is how I shall end this podcast. Yet performing live, alone on stage, remains the defining aspect of the profession. That terrifying to thrilling experience in front of an audience is what connects stand-up comedians through time. (laughs) Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, I want to thank my guest, Wayne Fetterman, again, for joining me. Follow him, buy his book, listen to his podcast, and see him perform live whenever and wherever you can. <laughs> live, baby! As I mentioned, Hilf is going to do a live episode recording on Thursday, May 26th at the Glendale Reading Room in Glendale, California, and we'd love to have you there. It's a small, intimate space. It only seats about 100 people, so hustle to our Instagram, at hilfpodcast, and find all the details. Nab your tickets. And lastly, before I sign off, as I record this, it is of note to mention that in Ukraine, right now, it is a former stand up comedian who is standing so bravely between a violent aggression and a more peaceful world. And I have heard such surprise from some people about that. They seem to see it as a far cry from his previous profession. And I couldn't disagree more. This situation, this war, is awful, as is the world in general. It doesn't take a keen eye or a nuanced mind to recognize all that is dark and scary and poised to kill you. It's where comedy has always come in. It is the role the comedian has always played. The giggle at the funeral that prevents us from envying the dead. So keep that which makes you laugh close. And always remember, history is a party and everybody's coming. Thank you for listening to HILF, History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, and I'll see you next time.